Praise the Lord, everyone. How are you? This is a wonderful time that we are in the presence of God. We've had a wonderful worship. Thank you for joining us today. This is a time that we want to, uh, to hear the word of God. And I pray that even as we share this word, you will be blessed. I want to talk to the churches uh, from the message that Jesus gave to the churches in the world, uh, the message that is contained in the book of Revelation. Now, it's important to understand this book because many people and many churches rarely talk about this book and or rarely read this book of Revelation. But then one of the other things that I've noticed is that the people who actually read Revelation, they misinterpret it, and sometimes they use it to manipulate or control people. So I just want to focus on the church and the words of Jesus Christ to the church. And I want to focus on one particular church because I plan to do, you know, this kind of sermons for the, for the coming few weeks. And I want to focus on the Ephesus church, the Ephesus church, which we call the persevering church. And we want to see what Jesus said about this Ephesus church and what it means to our generation and to this church of today. So welcome, Karibu Sana. If there's someone you know who should be hearing this message, please share with them. If there's someone you know who should benefit from this service, please share with them. All right, so let's go to the book of Revelation. And I'm going to do that. I'm going to read, but also I will go bit by bit. And I also want to introduce uh, this, uh, this book, uh, Ephesus. So the first question that we have to ask ourselves was, is this, where was Ephesus based? Okay, so first let's understand that Ephesus is a church that was founded by the Apostle Paul. And when he founded this book, he also wrote to them what we call the letter to the Ephesians or the epistle to the Ephesians. And he put in charge Priscilla and Aquila, who were a couple. And they were put in charge of the church at Ephesus. But then over time, uh, a, few hundred, a, few, a, few, uh, a few years to, uh, you know, into the church, the church was attacked by uh, polit politics, uh, desire for power, wrangles, and all these things. And so Jesus is now talking to John, the revelator, about this church. Okay? The church at Ephesus was located in what we call modern-day Turkey today because that was the center or the capital city of the world then. Everything was revolving around Asia. And so when Jesus is talking to uh, John the Revelator, he says, write to the churches that are in the province of Asia. Some people have asked me, does it mean that there were no other churches at that, at that time? And I say, no, there were many other churches, but these were the main seven churches that were located in what was considered to be the capital city of that world at that time. So they were influential churches in that specific area of Turkey. All right. So the church at Ephesus was established uh, 15 to 20 years after the death of Jesus Christ. Uh, and we know about the death of Jesus Christ. And Paul visited this church according to the book of Acts 18 and 19 on his second missionary journey. And you can go on and read that. Now, Ephesus was very important. And let's look at the message that Jesus Christ speaks. When we read these letters uh, to the seven churches, Let's understand that there is some breakdown uh, that Jesus was following. The first thing that you will notice is that Jesus, for every letter that he writes to the church, he introduces himself. 
So he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, or I am the one with the blazing fire. You know, so he introduces himself. And the second structure, or the second theme that we see is that he praises this church. Uh, he says something good about the church. And the third thing is he rebukes the church. And the fourth thing that he does is he gives a warning uh, to the church. And the fifth thing is that he gives a command to the church. And then he, uh, he speaks about the rewards that the church will get once they overcome the problems that they have. And the last thing that we see in this structure is the call. So there is the introduction, there is a praise, there is a rebuke, there is a warning, there is a command, there is a reward, and there is a call. And the call is, let him who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to the church. Okay, so Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. This is where now Jesus comes and is talking now about the specific church of Ephesus, which I have referred to as the persevering church. This is a church that persevered through a lot of issues. So let's get into it and let's read. Now, first things first, Jesus introduces himself in Revelation 2, 1 to 7. He is specifically introducing himself to this particular church, the church of Ephesus. When you read about this, uh, the church in the book of Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, and you read about the letters of, uh, you know, for each, Jesus re uh, introduces himself differently to each church, okay, depending on what he wants to say to them. So the first one he says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. Now, when you talk about the angel, there has been great debate on whether the angel is the pastor of that church or there is a particular angel that Jesus is talking about. And I believe that there is an angel, a real angel, that Jesus was talking about. Because this is the second thing that he says. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Okay? Please understand that. The seven stars represent the seven angels. Each star represents a church which means there is a particular angel for these specific uh, churches. And then the lampstands represent these churches. So let me repeat that. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and you, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. If we are to interpret that, it means Jesus Christ holds the churches, holds the angels who are in charge, and he has them. He is with them, but he also walks among the churches. Even in today's world, I believe that Jesus Christ is walking among the churches. And one of the questions that we have to ask ourselves, if Jesus came to your church today, would he sit down and actually fellowship with you? Would he join you for a service of worship? Or would he walk away from the door? Would you recognize Jesus if he walked into your church? Or are you so obsessed with recognizing your pastor or your bishop such that if Jesus came to your church, you would not recognize him and you would not even know him? The most interesting thing that I have discovered, even as I do ministry and as we do all these things, is that Jesus doesn't always show up the way we want him to show up. Jesus sometimes doesn't come dressed up in slick suits and looking nice and, and, you know, with red carpets as we expect him to do. And many times, many people make the mistake 
of using their pastors, using us as pastors, as reference points to Jesus. And I want to make it very clear, we are not Jesus. No pastor in your church or in any other church in the world is Jesus. Therefore, let us stop giving people uh, you know, positions in our hearts, positions in our lives that can only be reserved for Jesus Christ. Let us always remember that Jesus is the one who died for us. And so he's walking among the lampstands. He's walking among the churches. And the question is, when Jesus walks in your church, do you see Jesus or do you see your bishop or your apostle? Okay, so Jesus begins this letter by saying, I am the, I am the one who holds the seven stars and, uh, in my right hand, and I am the one who walks among the golden lampstands to indicate the power and the authority that he has over the churches. In other words, when he says this to the, uh, to the church in Ephesus, he is establishing his authority because this Ephesus church thought that they were the best they thought that they were the number one. They thought that they were elevated. Okay? So Jesus is telling them, I am the one who holds everything. So that's introduction. He introduces himself. If Jesus came to you today, how would he introduce himself to you? Would he come to you to establish his authority? Okay? Then the second thing that Jesus does is that he praises this church. And he says... I know your deeds, your hard work. Let's uh, understand that. He says, I know your deeds, meaning that Jesus recognizes every work that we do as churches or as individuals. Okay? I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. This is now what we call the persevering church. Jesus recognizes their works. He recognizes how much they have persevered. And we'll see what they had to persevere, this church at Ephesus. And he says, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Okay? In today's churches, we rarely talk about perseverance. We rarely talk about endurance. In fact, we want motivational speakers. We want people who will give us hope. We want people who will tell us everything is okay. I know of particular churches that cannot persevere one moment or one season of lack or one season of hardships because even the way we have shaped the minds of our people is that we are not meant to persevere. No. The blessings of God maketh rich, okay? You know, and we quote these nice verses, and it's okay. But the Lord is saying, when you persevere, I know it. When you go through hardships, I know it. When you don't grow weary, I know it. But I also know when you don't persevere. I also know when you don't work hard. I also know when you grow weary. I know it, and I'm there to see it. So I know your deeds. And in this case, we can say, uh, he knows our works, both good works and bad works. He knows them and he's recording them somewhere. So what did they have to persevere, this church at Ephesus? What did, he, did they have to persevere? There were several things that were happening at Ephesus. One of the main things that was happening was the worship of Diana. 
or the, God, the Greek god that is called Artemis. Okay? And this was a huge thing. At Ephesus, there was what we call the Temple of Artemis um, or, or the Temple of Diana. This was a woman, a, a goddess who was worshipped. She was a goddess of fertility. And therefore, uh, her image was, was filled up with many breasts. Okay? And so people would come to worship her so that they can be fertile, so that they can give birth. In the process of worship, they also practiced sex worship or sex sacrifices, where they would have sex in the temple of Diana. And they would do all these things, and they would sacrifice uh, food to this, uh, to this temple so that they can increase their, uh, their fertility. It was so huge, this temple of Diana, that it, was, it is considered as one of the seven wonders of the world. That's how brilliant, how magnificent, and how big it was. In fact, Diana was so prominent at Ephesus and in this culture that at some point Paul was imprisoned because he went and preached against this spirit or against this demonic power and he healed people and he delivered people who had this spirit. And so uh, there was an uprise against Paul and against Silas when they were preaching. And so they were jailed. All right, And you can read that in the book of Acts. So she was a goddess, uh, uh, a Greek goddess. She was referred to the goddess of the hunt, the goddess of childbirth, the goddess of fertility. And she was known, as I've, as I've said, Diana or Artemis. Okay? It was dedicated, this temple of Diana was dedicated to her worship specifically. Therefore, the church at Ephesus was existing through very difficult circumstances in the presence of Diana. They had to confront this spirit every day, and meaning they had to persevere a lot of challenges, a lot of immorality, a lot of rebukes from people, a lot of slander, and they had to go through that and refuse to bow. They did not grow weary, Jesus says. Okay? The question I have to, to, uh, to ask you is this. What is the one thing that is really surrounding you in your life? What is the temple of Diana in your life? What is these things that are really challenging your life? And Jesus talks to this church and says, I know you cannot tolerate wicked people, okay? Because there was a lot of wickedness around uh, this place. Then, after praising them, then he goes back to the thing and he says, uh, the rebuke, he says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Now, this is interesting. Despite your good deeds and your good works, despite persevering, despite testing and hating the wicked, Jesus has something against these people. And he says you have forsaken your first love. Now, do you remember when you got born again, when you got saved, the passion, the fire that you had to serve God, to go out into the world? You know, some of you said, Lord, now that I'm born again, I'm going to be an evangelist. Lord, that I'm born again, now I'm going to be a pastor. The fire was burning. The love was genuine. And the passion was driving you to do things that you never thought you would do. And so you were there believing that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. Several years later, you don't even believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the only way to heaven. You have been discouraged. 
you have, been, uh, you have seen prophets who have prophesied wrong prophecies. And so you are getting discouraged by prophetic words. You are getting discouraged by pastors when they preach. You are even getting discouraged from reading the Bible. Now you doubt everything you see about God. And Jesus is saying, you have forsaken your first love. In other words, you have grown weary. You have allowed the things of this world to take away that first passion, that first uh, drive that you had. So he says, I hold this against you. Then he goes on and he gives a command. And he says, consider how far you have fallen. Interesting stuff. Interesting. Uh, because sometimes when you have, when you're serving in church, um, you don't think that you have failed. But the truth of the, of the matter is, there are people who are serving in church, but they have fallen in terms of their passion and in terms of the first love that they had. There are people who can even detect false teachers. They can detect and hate wickedness, but still Jesus holds something against them. This is the funny thing. Jesus considers forsaking your first love as a fall. Okay? And that's what he's saying. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Now remember, they are not repenting to be saved. They are already saved. Jesus is telling them, repent to do. Repent and do the things. Okay? Turn around from what you have embraced now and go back to what you used to do at first when you started. So turn around and do the things that you did at first. And this is the most interesting thing. Then he gives a warning and he said, If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. So let me ask you a question. Are there things that you feel or that you know that you used to do for Jesus, but now you no longer do them? Maybe your life has become so comfortable now, you cannot go for a mission. Maybe your life has become so comfortable now, you can't even go anywhere for Jesus because it's raining, you know. Yet when you had, uh, in your first love, nothing could stop you. Isn't it interesting that the church of today is filled with excuses of why we shouldn't do what we need to do? We are filled with excuses of why we should not do the work of evangelism. We are filled with excuses of why we should not do the work of discipleship. Because I consider the greatest work in the kingdom to be discipleship. Anyone can go into a service and preach and win souls, but it takes work to disciple people. It takes work to walk with people. It takes a, a lot of sacrifice to stand with people. And this is what the church in Kenya used to do. This is what the church in Africa used to do. But now we have come to a point in our lives as a church where we have forsaken the first love. Jesus is saying, consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. In other words, return back to evangelism. Return to discipleship. Return to mentorship. Return to the sound teaching of the word. Move away from your comfort zones the comfort places that we are at. And then he says, if you do not repent, I will come to you and we remove your lampstand from its place. Now, you go back to history. 
when Jesus was talking these words, uh, you know, giving John the Revelator, one of the things that you notice is that this church was one of the biggest churches at that time. But today, the city of Ephesus lies in ruins. It has become an, an archaeological site where people go to visit. The Lord removed this church, removed this lampstand from its place. And that's the saddest thing. And sometimes you ask yourself, is it possible for God to remove someone from a position? And I say, yes, he can. Especially if he has warned you and warned you and you cannot listen and you cannot hear. He gives you a warning, but then you decide, oh, I'm not going to listen to this. And this is the saddest thing. Then, then the other thing that Jesus does is that he has praise for them. And he says, but you have this in your favor. He says, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. You see, when Jesus says he hates your teaching, my friend, it's a big problem. He actually means it. So let's look at, just briefly, what is this Nicolaitans? What were they teaching? The word Nico comes from the Greek word, Nico, okay, Nikos. And the, the, the word Laos, so Nikos means to conquer, and the word Laos means people. So that's where we get the word Nicholas, so Nicolaitans. And, and it seems to me, or it seems to many scholars, that this word Nicolaitans come, uh, meant conquering people or leading people in a subdued way. And so it stems from a person who was called Nicholas, okay? And I don't want to get into the biblical aspect of it, but this guy was one of the people who were advancing this gospel. And several things that he was doing was the, the doctrine of compromise. He was encouraging people to compromise on their doctrine. And this is how he was doing it. He was allowing paganism to mix, up, to mix up with Christianity because he had no issue. He was saying all of them can coexist. It is, it's more like how the church of today is embracing paganism and witchcraft and sorcery and mixing it up with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have seen churches that are involved in witchcraft, churches that are involved in sorcery so that they can bring people to, you know, uh, so that their stadiums can be filled. You organize a convention and then you pray, but then you go and involve sorcery so that people can come. And this is what Jesus hates, the teaching of the Nicolaitans. That is one. So they were talking about the, do, uh, the, the, uh, the compromise of doctrine. The second thing that they were talking about is what I call the hierarchy of clergy. Okay? They were insisting so much on the authority aspect, uh, spiritual authority th stuff as we know it. And this, Jesus says, I hate it. Because this means you are conquering people. You are subduing people. You know, there are pastors who say that you cannot become a pastor and be soft. In other words, what their meaning is, I have to be your authority. There are churches today, you cannot get married until your pastor approves that you should get married. Jesus is saying, I hate that because it is, a, it is a, an act of the Nicolaitans. It's part of the teachings of Nicolaitans that we must respect and obey spiritual authority blindly. And for me, I am against that as Jesus is against. We do not have hierarchical uh, dictatorship in churches. But we shouldn't have it. But it's there. And people are bowing at the feet of their pastors. 
People are running, uh, uh, you know, at the feet of their bishops and apostles. Grown men, grown women are going to wipe the feet of, of their pastors and their apostles. And Jesus says, I hate that. The truth is, the only person we need to bow to is Jesus Christ. Any pastor, any apostle, any prophet who demands to be worshipped is not of God. Is a false prophet. And Matthew 7 says, we shall know them by their fruits. We shall know these false prophets by their fruits. And these are some of the fruits. When you begin as a preacher, when you begin to command people as if they belong to you, that is already a problem. You are already an Nicolaitan. But then Jesus gives a call and he says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And I want to say this and I want to repeat it. There is something that Jesus is saying to the church in general, to the church in the world. Then the last thing that Jesus says to the church at Ephesus is this. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So the question we ask ourselves is, to the one who is victorious in what? Okay. If you are able to return to your first love, to move away from the things of this world and go back to the first love that you had for Jesus and then cons consistently hold on to that love until the return of Jesus Christ, then Jesus is saying, I will give you the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. We know that the tree of life was in the Garden of Eden. And this is the garden uh, or the place or the tree that Adam and Eve were barred from going back to eat by God because if they had gone back to eat, they would have been restored back to the place or the position that they had with God. And so Jesus is saying to the one who is victorious, I will give you back that position. I will restore you to the position of glory. So friends, there is a challenge for us as a church the persevering church. Though we persevere, let us return to the first love. So go back to what Jesus, uh, to the love that you had for Jesus at the beginning. And if you hold on to that love, at the end of it all, there will be a reward for you and for me. So I want to pray for you today. And I want to say that in Kenya, in Africa, and in the world, this is the call. Though you are a persevering church, return to the first love. Love Jesus like you used to do. You see, one of the other things I noticed today in this generation is that we have replaced the cross of Jesus Christ with our own images. When I was growing up, we used to identify a church with the sign of the cross. Now we identify a church with the pictures of a husband and a wife of the apostle and his wife or, or her husband. And this is the other, we have replaced the image of Jesus, the image of the cross, with our own images. Let us return to the first love. Lord, I pray for everyone who is watching today. And I ask that your grace and your blessings will be upon them. That Lord, you will help us to return to this first love. I also pray for those who want to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And if you're there today and you want to receive Jesus, say this prayer with me. Lord, I believe in your Son, 
and I believe that he is God. I accept him in my heart. Amen. So the Lord bless you, the Lord keep you, and the Lord be with you. 